Welcome. Thanks for tuning in today. We are in week four of our study of First and Second Chronicles. We've journeyed through these many weeks learning about David and Solomon. And last week we talked about Asa. This week we're going to learn about a king by the name of Jehoshaphat. It's probably a name, maybe even I heard somebody say jumping Jehoshaphat. But this morning we're going to uh, uncover how Jehoshaphat, who's actually the son of Asa, the work that he did for the kingdom and what he learned at the same time, realizing that in his case, he wasn't sure what to do. It reminds me of my own story of there's been so many times, either in this current season, as we've leaned into 19 months of walking in all sorts of unknowns, even the idea of this platform. Uh, I'm a person who understands technology a little bit, but all that we've had to lean into. And there were moments where I really wondered if I knew what to do, or even when I was a child, to be reminded of a time or two or three where I was hanging out with my buddies and think of one in particular where uh, I had a soapbox derby that I had competed in and we kept it for just a fun cart around the neighborhood. And where I lived, there was a a nice little hill in the backyard uh, that went down a street into the local uh, community park. So my buddy Kevin and I, we jumped on that thing. I was down in the pilot section, Kevin jumped on the back and we had a great time and what started out to be slow, the next thing you know, we ended up turning the thing upside down. Kevin really cut his uh, shin pretty good. I ended up breaking my arm. And at that moment, it was like, what are you gonna do? How are you gonna do? What do I do to come out of this? And it was really uncertain. So we both went home and I ended up going to the doctor after doing my paper route and getting my arm put in a cast and Kevin ended up getting a few stitches. But in those moments when things come at us, we're never quite sure how to push in. And so when we don't know what to do, today we're going to meet a man in a similar circumstance where he wasn't sure what to do. He's the son of Asa, the the king we talked about last week. His name is Jehoshaphat, and he was the sixth king in the line of David. And Ezra, who's been our teacher through this series, gives us this sort of introduction here in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. Ezra says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commands. So the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. And then all Judah brought him tribute and had riches and honor and abundance. His mind rejoiced in the Lord's ways. If you've ever been in a tight spot or if you've ever been in a place where you didn't know quite what to do, or if you've ever felt like you were facing a giant or an enemy that's so much bigger than you and could actually wipe you out, maybe physically or uh, metaphysically, if you will, to steal your riches, we want to look at this guy Jehoshaphat as a person that could be our hero. Because you see, it's Jehoshaphat faced all sorts of difficulties that uh, when you look at it, he didn't know what to do. He actually says that in his own words. He says that in front of God, and he says it in front of everybody. And yet, what's interesting as we look at his life, he did exactly the right thing. And in fact, he did it eight times in a row. Let's jump in here to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So together, let's lean in and and pray. Lord Jesus, speak to me. Amen. So a little background here. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became a king. He reigned over Judah which was the southern kingdom of Israel. Remember, we looked at that last week for 25 years. In fact, look here at the map. Uh, And and he had two wars and a bad marriage. And we're going to actually unpack the bad marriage in a couple weeks. And here, Ezra says to us, After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, together with some of the 
Some of the Menuhites came to fight against Jehoshaphat. People came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast number from beyond the Dead Sea and from Edom has come to fight against you. They are already in Hazan Tamar, that is En Gedi. That's 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 2. So we've got the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites, and they've all lived on the east side of the Dead Sea. Their nations had been conquered under King David, and now they're sort of rolling back and rebelling. I'm wondering how you would feel if you got word that there was this huge army amassing that was much bigger than your own, and it was coming to get you. Uh, what would you do? Well, Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he resolved to seek the Lord. Then he proclaimed a fast for all Judah who gathered to seek the Lord. And they even came from all over the cities of Judah to seek him. There's three strategic things that Jehoshaphat does in this uh, dark moment. Uh, first of all, he's resolved to seek the Lord, verse 3. He's called for a fast, and then he's gathered the people in verse 4. When we looked at last week's story of Asa, we were reminded of God's promise to Asa that the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him, right? And at the first sign of danger, Jehoshaphat sought the Lord. That's a prudent thing, right? He sought the Lord in all things. His heart was fully devoted, the scripture says, to the Lord. So I'm wondering in this current season, as we continue to move to a new normal, how has your heart been? I asked that question last week. Or, or where or who have you been devoted to? It's interesting here that Jehoshaphat, uh, to deepen his commitment, he calls a fast. Now, a fast is something, it's a practice. When you fast, you, you're constantly thinking about food, which means you're constantly reminded that you do not live by bread alone, but it's every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So a fast is to help us lean into a time of prayer when we would normally be eating. We go on to understand that Josephat brings the people together because he knows their strength in numbers. Two are better than one, the proverb says, because they have a good return for their labor. And wherever two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, there he is in our midst. We know these scriptures, right? Jehoshaphat does a fourth strategic thing then. He prays. And here, verses 5 through 12. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the Lord's temple before the new courtyard. He said, Lord God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand and no one can stand against you. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in the land and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name and have said, if disaster comes on us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you for your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you because of our distress and you will hear and deliver. Now here are the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. You did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. Look how they repay us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. A couple things stand out here. Jehoshaphat reminds God of who he is. That's kind of bold, right? And, and then what he's done for them in the past. 
You rule with power and you've been there for all the descendants of Abraham, he reminds God. And then Jehoshaphat goes on and he affirms their commitment to the Lord. We built your sanctuary, we've worshipped you there, and now we're crying out to you from there. And then he lays out the problem. We've been invaded by people we once had mercy on. And he calls God for justice. Will you not judge, he says. He reminds God that his reputation is on the line. That's some pretty bold stuff, if you ask me. And so the climax of this story, Jehoshaphat's prayer, is a prayer that I think all of us have prayed many times, right? Many times. He says, we do not know what to do, but we look to you. Maybe that could be our prayer in the days ahead, each morning even. We don't know what to do, but we look to you. That prayer works all the time, in every circumstance. And let's say it again. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. Looking to God then, here in, as we continue in the story, in verse 33, all Judah was standing before the Lord with their dependents, their wives, and their children. In the middle of the congregation, the Spirit of the Lord came on Jezreel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Metaniah, a Levite from Asaph's descendants. And he said, listen carefully, all Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, this is what the Lord says, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast number, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Man, how many times have any of us faced something that was so amazingly terrible, if you will, and we felt like we were all alone? I love this story, and I love being reminded that God is there for us. Because to be honest, if you've committed yourself to Jesus, if you are, like we talked last week, wholeheartedly devoted to him, if you have said, Lord, live your life through me, and I will live for you the rest of my life, then... What's amazing is the eyes of the Lord are on you to give strength to you. The battle you are facing, he says, is not yours, but it's God. Man, that certainly takes it off the table in a whole new way, right? Again, these words, the battle is yours, Lord. The battle is yours, Lord. Let me say it one more time. The battle is yours, Lord. Jehazel continues, verse 16, Tomorrow go down against them. You will see them coming up the ascent of Zith. And you'll find them at the end of the valley facing the wilderness of Jeru. And then listen to this. You do not have to fight this battle, he says. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. He is with you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Tomorrow, go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. Those are amazingly good and strong words for us. And then continuing in verse 18, Jehoshaphat knelt low and with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord to worship him. Then the Levites from the sons of Korahites and Korahites stood up to praise the Lord of Israel shouting loudly. Man, that's getting even better, right? So what does he do? He leads them into worship according to verses 18 and 19. They stood up, he says, to praise the Lord God of Israel loudly. Do you wonder what might have happened the next day? How many of the Israelites do you think died in this battle? Well, let's keep reading here and find out. Verse 20, in the morning they got up early and went out to the wilderness of Teko. Teko is about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. It's fairly easy hike since it's all downhill. Just before they started the hike, the text says to us, 
As they were about to go out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and your inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. And then it gets interesting in this next part, verse 21. Then he consulted with the people and appointed some to sing for the Lord and some to praise the splendor of his holiness. When they went out in front of the armed forces, they kept singing, give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love endures forever. I don't know if you've ever thought about the power of singing, but if you ponder this for a moment, it's interesting, they sang, it says, and the Lord heard them. And here's what happened, verse 22. The moment they began their shouts and praises, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir who came to fight against Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites turned against the inhabitants of Mount Seir and completely annihilated them. When they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy each other. I guess there's some kind of hidden power in singing, and it's something we've all missed in so many different ways, right? Uh, there's a power, if you will, in, in this idea of praising God. Something happens when we use our voices to make a melody to God. You might even think that the next time you're in trouble, or the next time you're in the shower, maybe you should start singing, right? So the sixth strategic thing that Jehoshaphat does is he appoints people to sing, verses 20 and 21. I know I wouldn't have thought that a major move to defeat the enemy would involve music and voices. Now you need to keep in perspective that Jehoshaphat and all the people don't know what's happened on the battlefield yet. They haven't even gotten there. They're just marching along singing. Verse 24 says, And when Judah came to the place overlooking the wilderness, they looked for the large army, but there were only corpses lying on the ground. Nobody had escaped. Wow. I mean, wow. And so here's the story, and it's a, it's a true story. Once upon a time, there was a big bad army coming against the people of God. The people didn't know what to do, but they resolved to seek the Lord. They gathered together, they fasted, they prayed, they heard a word from God from one of his spokesmen, and then they worshiped. They began to sing, and God performed a miracle right there in front of them. He ambushed their enemies, and the people lived happily ever after. But that's not the end of the story. It goes on. And then Jehoshaphat and his people went to gather the plunder. They found among them an abundance of goods on the bodies and valuable items. So they stripped them until nobody could carry any more. They were gathering the plunder for three days because there was so much. They assembled in the valley of Baraka on the fourth day, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, this place is still called the Valley of Baraka today. Baraka means blessing or the place became the valley of blessing. We're building a list here, and so here's the seventh thing that Jehoshaphat did. He blessed the Lord, verses 26 through 29. And the rest of it is history, as we say. Let's continue reading here, verse 27. And then all the men of Judah and Jerusalem turned back with Jehoshaphat, their leader, returning joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord enabled them to rejoice over their enemies. So they came into Jerusalem to the Lord's temple with harps and lyres and trumpets. The terror of God was on all the kingdoms of this land when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And then Jehoshaphat's kingdom was quiet, for his God gave him rest on every side. Last week we spoke about how the, this is the book of revivals, and this is the revival that took place under King Jehoshaphat. It was a terrible disaster. It looked like things were going to go south real quick against the nation. Nobody knows what to do, but there's one man. He's the king. 
He stands up and says, I'm going to seek the Lord. Brilliant. He asks the nation to join him in fasting, in gathering together to pray, and to ask God to deliver them. God answers through the prophet, and he says, I've got this. The battle is mine. I invite you to come and watch. And the beauty of that is the people believed. And they bow down to thank God in faith for what he's going to do, and then rise up and praise him with singing. Early in the next morning, they sing their way to the battlefield, where instead of having to engage the enemy, they find out that the enemy has engaged themselves. So the people help themselves to the spoils, to what's left behind, and they go heading home, and they hold another worship service when they get there. And then they enjoy the eighth and the final strategic move that takes place here, which is what? They rested, verse 30. They enjoyed the peace that God gave them. Through this series, we're looking through the eyes in the pen of Ezra, who lays out this story, and he's teaching us about how to rescue a nation. He's showing us this, and these are the lessons from the revival with Jehoshaphat. First of all, that God is available and attentive in your darkest moments, 2 Chronicles chapter 17, to be always reminded that God is there and God is aware. I like that. That God is there and God is aware. And then Ezra is showing us a second point, that prayer is more powerful than any enemy, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. It's interesting that even when we don't know how to pray, like King Jehoshaphat, his prayer is one of the simplest, and yet it's even quite profound, to be honest. He just says, we don't know what to do, God, but we look to you. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, in the same way the Spirit who helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. So here, here's the takeaway. When things are dark and you're not quite sure what to do and you're looking for a solution to your problem, you just have to remember that God has the solution, even if you don't. We don't know what to do, but we look to you, Ezra tells us. Think about that. In fact, I'd encourage you to memorize that. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. It's an ancient prayer. It will work on any occasion. In fact, let's say it again. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. One more time. Practice makes perfect. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. So our friend Ezra here is showing us a couple things. One, that God is able to turn whatever comes against you against itself. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 22. He can turn trials into triumphs. He can turn our failures into learning lessons. He can turn our enemies into our friends. He can turn our enemies into providers for our every need. God can take any circumstance that's coming against us and he can use it for us because he is for you. Ezra says here that God is showing us that God can turn any evil into a good. And we know that's Romans 8.28. In Romans 8, right after telling us that the Spirit prays for us when we don't know what to pray for ourselves, Paul then says, and we know that all things... We've talked about this before. What things? All things. Do what? They work together for the good of those that love God, who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. King Jehoshaphat's enemies thought they were coming to steal, kill, and destroy. But what actually happened is they uh, came to turn over their, all their personal possessions to the Israelites. So let's land this plane. 
today in our lives, in so many different ways, we're facing an enemy that's too small to see, but it's also too big to ignore because of the impact it's had. Some 700,000 plus people have died from the coronavirus. It's a real enemy with real consequences. And even the virus itself has stirred all sorts of disconnect and brewed all sorts of disharmony in our culture. We've worried about losing our health and we've worried about losing our loved ones. And we've also worried about losing our jobs and our finances. We've also worried about the issue of equality and about the idea of how to live together in a civil society in our political systems. And yet Jesus says to us, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have laid this story out for us so that we might learn to remind us to turn to you in our darkest moments. And although the worldwide pandemic continues to move and we're seeing right now some decline in it, and it's also pushed with it so many different kinds of economic effects. And it's pretty dark to us right now trying to understand what the future holds. We don't know what to do. And yet, as the ancient Israelites, we're looking to you. So first we pray that you'd turn this virus upon itself, that you'd destroy it. And you direct us to the valley of blessing where we can pick up the plunder and, and give you all the praise. So if you think about these words we've used this morning, we do not know what to do, but we look to you. Let's pray these together, maybe in your situation that you're pushing through. Lord, I don't know what to do, but we look to you. Together, as we pray this morning, Jesus, we pray your Holy Spirit to encourage us in all things, knowing that you are in the details. And we just give you the praise now as your people, and we pray it together in your strong name. Amen. Let's continue with our worship, and let us sing like the Israelites of old. <laughs> 